So we're starting a new series today. And oh, by the way, I, if anybody needs a coat, I got one yet you can borrow, okay? I, I'm married. I never get to choose the temperature, but I was warm enough. And last week, Pastor Ron Klein preached. I remember he didn't even have on a tie. And, and I was, I mean, I really look up to that guy. And great job last week, by the way. He's right down here. It's good to have you here and preaching and leading us. And so we're starting this new series today we're calling Forward to the Cross to the Crown, looking at what are we to be about as God's people. If you need a Bible, would you just raise your hand because they'll bring one right to you. We've got a whole stack in the back, and uh, you don't need a stack of Bibles, you just need one. And if you need to, you can keep it, okay? So uh, we need one over on this side. Um, if somebody, somebody got some over here, thank you. Just uh, right up the center aisle, about halfway up, we, we need one over here. And uh, we're going to be looking different places. Probably the first one is in Matthew chapter 28. So if you could look ahead there, oh, we're going to be getting there. But uh, this series, if you look at the little picture there at the bottom, where it starts kind of with this arrow, all the things we do until finally we realize we've got to come to Christ. And uh, they have the cross and then all these arrows of things we do once we're in Christ until we finally reach heaven and see our King of Kings, Lord of Lords face to face. So this, that's kind of our theme here, to the cross, to the crown. And uh, we're going to fill that out over the next couple of weeks, but I want you to get to look at the graphic and so kind of get it in your mind. In fact, why don't you take your note page and turn it over and use your pen and draw it yourself, can you? Try it. Okay, it's still up there on the screen. It's kind of like an open book test, you know what I'm saying? You can look at it more than once if you want. But you have an arrow that heads to the cross, and you have the cross of Christ. And then you have the arrows of when we're in Christ and growing in him and becoming like Christ and being transformed until we kind of uh, come to the crown. Um, one of our uh, single moms has a couple kids that she was going to send to camp in June. And so she went to buy a Bible for her son. I think he's eight or nine years old. And when he sees the Bible, he's so excited. He said, I'm going to stop reading the book I've been reading. I'm going to read the Bible. And she says to him, well, where are you going to start reading? And he looks at her like, oh, of course, Mom. That's not a hard question. I'm going to start at the beginning, right? Which isn't ordinarily the way people would read the Bible if they've spent much time in it to read actually from, right from the start. So she waited a couple of days. She said, how's that reading going? He goes, did you know there are people who live to be over 900 years old? And so she knew he was reading, and then a, later, the next week she said, how is that reading? She said, did you know that Abraham, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son? He says, well, did he do it? He says, well, no, because uh, God provided another sacrifice. So she knows she was pleased that he was getting into God's word. But at that pace, it's going to be a while for him to get to the center part of the story because he's going to go through Abraham and then Abraham's family and then them going to Egypt and slavery and then Exodus and the giving of the law and the wandering and the conquest of the land and then having judges and then having kings and then getting taken back into captivity and then coming back to the land and then waiting and waiting and finally Jesus. And then with Jesus, of course, you'll have his teachings and his miracles and his death and his resurrection and then commissioning the disciples, go make disciples of all nations and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church and people writing scriptures and then missionaries going out and then seeing at the end of the book how it all concludes in heaven at the feet of Jesus, our King of kings and Lord of lords. I mean, that's the big story of the Bible, kind of in one breath. But the center of the story is Jesus. It's about Jesus. And so that drawing is trying to capture in art form this whole plan of God. God has a plan. It's a great big plan. And Jesus came and died to offer salvation. And yet God's plan is bigger than that. 
Because people need to know about it. They need a chance to respond in faith and uh, repentance and, and become a believer and to follow Jesus. Jesus offered that to a guy named Simon. He showed up at uh, Simon's uh, home in Capernaum. Simon was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, like hundreds if not thousands of people had been before, just trying to feed his family and make ends meet. And Jesus, uh, he uh, saw Jesus in church. Jesus did a miracle in his church, and then so he invited Jesus home for lunch. And Jesus did a miracle healing his mother-in-law, who was homesick. And uh, then Jesus came walking along later that week along the shore, Simon was mending his nets after a miserable night of fishing, and Jesus said, can I borrow your boat? And so Simon gave Jesus a ride in his boat, and Jesus did another miracle, overloaded the boat with fish. And then he said to Peter, come follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for men. And so Peter did. And he began to realize Jesus is more than just a good guy. He's more than a great teacher. He's more than a prophet. He's actually God come in human flesh. And Peter said so out loud to everybody. And he saw Jesus transfigured on a mountaintop. And he was growing closer to Jesus. And then later, of course, he was, Peter was in a heated discussion with the other disciples about which of them was most important. And then when Jesus needed it, he defended Jesus in a scuffle. In fact, he cut a guy's ear eyed off. But then later he's gripped with fear and he swore up and down and up again that he never had heard of Jesus. And then Jesus died. Peter really felt badly. And after three days, Jesus rose from the dead and he came and he found Peter and he forgave him and he commissioned him and he empowered him. And Peter became a leader of God's people. I mean, God has a big plan and it includes people like Peter and like you and like me. In fact, just before he left the earth, Jesus got together all of his disciples. He gathered his closest friends and he gave them one last directive. And it's found right here in Matthew chapter 28, starting verse 18. Actually, verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. See, Jesus had gathered together these disciples, these learners, these students. They had been in the Jesus school for three years. They had just graduated. And just as he's leaving, he says, now you go make disciples of all nations. Now, I got thinking about this. We don't really use the word disciple in conversational English very often. Not anymore. But if you wanted to go and get physically fit and to be strong and to be in better shape than you are today, you would go get a trainer or a coach or a mentor, and they would help you set up a plan, and a plan that, that plan would include some changes in your life. Probably it would include more exercise and less edibles, and probably more stretching and less sugar, a lot less sugar. And uh, in other words, you would enter into a plan a process to move you from where you are to the person you want to be. And you wouldn't get it done in a day, but you would start by aiming a certain direction by choosing a trainer to be your trainer. Jesus was the trainer, and the disciples were the trainees, I guess. And uh, so hiring a trainer would be a good start. But it wouldn't be all you do, or it really wouldn't be worth all that much. If all you did is you hired a trainer, but you never went to training, you never showed up, or when you did show up, you just brought your coffee and watched everybody else get trained, 
that really wouldn't count for very much, would it? If you went to the training and then you didn't obey the trainer. Now, some people realize that they need to make some changes when, if, if they're going to see God face to face and survive that event. They know that by, in their own strength, in their own merits, they can't stand in God's presence and be considered righteous and God's going to say, come into my heaven. He's going to look at you and say, why should I let you in my heaven? And the only answer is because I asked Jesus to forgive me for my sin. All roads don't lead to heaven. And they ask, the people who've asked Jesus to be their Savior and forgiven their, forgive their sin have chosen Jesus basically to be their trainer now to get them fit to live in God's presence. It's a good start. It's a necessary and important first step. But it's kind of like hiring the trainer. By itself, it's not enough. And if it's all you did, it's not the end of the story. I mean, Jesus said, you go make disciples. You go be the trainers. See, God has a bigger plan than just you getting saved by Jesus and then being satisfied to go on living each day as if you're in charge of your life and if nobody else in the world matters. So why do we make disciples? Number one, because Jesus said to. He commanded it. <clears throat> the second reason is because God has a plan for us and for our world. I mean, it looks like this. It's a great gathering of every nation and tribe and tongue. People have realized, I can't make it on my own merits. I need forgiveness. I need to come to Jesus. So you go make disciples of all nations. Do you know he told them this 2,000 years ago? Go make disciples of all nations. They've done the first part. They went out mostly from persecution, pushed them out of the city of Jerusalem. They took their faith with them. They kept talking to the family and friends and people they met along the way. Other people became believers but that all nations has still been out there in front of the church for 2,000 years. It's actually in reach. There are people, and it's pretty close to our church because Paul Eshelman is right at the center of that, and he's a member here, but have counted all the different people groups in the world. I don't remember the exact number. I don't know, 2,500 people groups, and about 500 still have an identified language, a group of people that nobody's a Christian. There are no churches. There are no missionaries trying to reach them. There's no scripture in their language, and uh, they are unreached. They're unengaged. So you remember, we adopted two of them in Nepal. We're pretty proud of ourselves. I talked to Ron and his organization he's working with adopted 37, all right? And you just go, wow, our faith was a little small. We adopted two. The good news I haven't told you is two members here at our church each saw this happen and talked to people and said, I got to adopt one myself. And two more adopted them. So we have four that are kind of under our umbrella. But in the next year or two, Paul is optimistic that all 500 groups left will be adopted by somebody. And monies will be gathered to translate some of the Bible into their language. And the, the uh, evangelists will be sent to talk to them. And people will come to Christ in every group. And that's what the Bible says. I mean... At first, the earlier followers of Jesus began to just talk about him. And then when God's spirit was poured out and the persecution began, they spread out. And then they began to write letters, which those were collected and put into the Bible. And But by the end of the Bible, at, in Revelation chapter 7, you can see God's vision for the whole thing. Here's what it says. So look to the last book there of the New Testament, Revelation 7. I'm starting verse 9. It says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's God's big desire. It's his plan that he would gather around him all of those throughout the centuries from all tribes and nations and people groups and languages, people who love him, who've been saved and rescued and transformed. And he wants to protect them and to provide for them and to comfort them. He loves them. He wants to be around those he loves. Why make disciples? Well, here's the big idea. Because we who have been saved, that is, rescued and transformed by Christ, we join God in gathering a rescued and transformed people to glorify Jesus forever. So part of that's in the future. Right now, in the present world, it, there's an urgent need for people to be delivered from the darkness of sin and suffering and evil and death. And God is doing that. He is rescuing a people from every nation by the death of and resurrection of Jesus. People are being transformed to be like Jesus. We're evil and to be part of Christ's new creation where there will be no evil and no death. And God will be their protector. He will be their provider. He will wipe every tear from our eye. So God is still looking for people who need to be rescued, who want to have a relationship with him to help pull them out of the life of sin before they drowned in it. People who come to Christ and are rescued, then begin this process of transformation to begin to think like Christ and to respond like Christ and to prioritize like Christ and to care like Christ and to give like Christ and to pray like Christ and to be the newest, bestest you you could be. Not through your own efforts, not through your own strength and power, but through the power of God's Holy Spirit, your new coach, your trainer, Jesus. So, we make disciples to join God in gathering a rescued and transformed people to glorify Jesus forever. So why do we make disciples? Because Jesus told us to, and because it's God's plan for us and for the world. And number three is because God's plan is to work through us, not around us. He takes regular people like you and me. When we fully devote ourselves to following Jesus, we're transformed. We join Christ in doing his important work of rescue and transformation. Somebody like that in the life of Christ was this woman at the well. We don't even know her name. She's found in John chapter 4. The Bible says Jesus had to walk through Samaria, which was an area that was antagonistic to Jewish people like Jesus. And he sat down at the well in the middle of the day, and it was hot, and this woman came to get water. Her life had been kind of spotty. She'd had a husband, and for some reason the relationship ended. We weren't told the gory details. Then she had another and another and another and another. And the man she's living with is, is not one of her first five husbands. So 
she comes at a time of day to avoid everybody else that she doesn't want to talk to in town, and Jesus asks her for a drink. She thinks he's kind of forward to even speak to her, a total stranger and a woman from Samaria. And so she says that, and he somehow turns the conversation to talk about spiritual things. And she's willing then to debate, uh, have a religious debate. But Jesus makes it personal. He starts talking about her and her brokenness and her spiritual need. And in the process of that, she felt loved and cared for enough that she finally sat down her water pot, which was the primary reason she thought she had gone to the well that day. And she raced back to town and uh, told everybody that she'd been trying to avoid. She got them all convinced there's somebody out at the well knows everything about me. I'll bet he's the Messiah. You got to come out and see him. And everybody did. This woman who, to our knowledge, never graduated from high school, she never wrote a book, she, nobody would ever consider her a scholar, but when she received love and forgiveness of Christ herself, she immediately went and shared it. She didn't try to, try to keep it just to herself. She was concerned for her family and her friends, and the whole town was blessed because she shared Jesus with them. I mean, think about it. Why would we not be concerned? Why would we not want to reach out to our family and to our friends and our neighbors with the love of Christ? Well, one reason might be we're just so busy. We're busy chasing our own pursuits and our own passions. We have so many things to do and so many things to get done. The to-do list is so long. We've got our favorite shows to watch and we've got to go shopping and we've got to take care of our house and then everybody's there and pretty soon it's dinner time and then everybody's tired and then you fall into bed and you do the, the day over and over and over. And you can make up your list for what's keeping you on this little running treadmill, but if all your time and all your energy and all your resources are all used up just on you all the time, you're too busy. And as fully devoted followers of Christ, we need to put Jesus at the top of our agenda if he's going to fit into it at all. To begin the day asking Jesus, what would you like me to do for you today? And then listen long enough to hear his whisper and respond in obedience. And then everything else is secondary. Everything will fit into place. So why are we not concerned? Maybe we're too busy. Or because we don't see the world as dark. There's no urgency for the lost. I found Christ. They can find him on their own sweet time. Let the rest of the world find him or die trying. But that's not the way of Christ. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why are we not concerned? Maybe we think it doesn't make any difference, that we're overwhelmed, that we actually believe some of the, the lies that we are told by the society around us, that Christianity is out of date and it's not popular right now, and you could get laughed at or ridiculed or criticized or marginalized. Why not be concerned? Well, maybe because we get caught thinking that faith is primarily about improving lives. It's so much bigger than that. It's about rescue and transformation. We don't just get better to the point where God would say, wow, I'm pleased with you. You're ahead of the curve. You're, you're better than average. Come on in. No, God looks at us and all of our own efforts and says they're like filthy rags, and you need the forgiveness and the love of Christ. And it's that coming to the cross, that sense that Christ rescued us from what would otherwise would have been disaster for us. William Booth was a man who was born into a poor family in England. It was 1829. He came to know about the Lord as a child, but at some point as a young adult, he was confronted with his need to repent and to receive Christ. 
And he did. In fact, he wrote in his diary, God shall have all there is of William Booth. He went on to get married, and he and his wife had a child, and then another, another, another. When they counted them all, there were eight. And um, he became a preacher, but it didn't really seem to take for him just the cares of one particular church when he felt like the most important thing is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, getting the good news out there. And so he went on to be an evangelist that traveled from place to place. He ended up starting an organization that they named the Salvation Army. You've probably heard of it and because it's still working today. Even though he died in 1917, there are 25,000 Soldiers in the Salvation Army today working in 91 countries. He would do the work of evangelism and he provided social relief for the poor and downtrodden because he believed charity would speed the work of evangelism. And I want to read an article that he wrote called, or at least part of it, called A Vision of the Lost because this is the kind of thought that fueled his passion. Here's what he says, I quote, On one of my recent journeys, I had a vision. I saw a dark and stormy ocean, and over it the black clouds hung heavily, though through them every now and then vivid lightning flashed and loud thunder rolled while the winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam, tower and break again. In that ocean I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. And as I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea, and all around the base of the rock I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waves to reach the place of safety. But as I looked down, I saw that the occupants of the platform were quite a mixed company. That is, most of them occupied themselves with very different pleasures and employments. Only a few of them seemed to make it their business to get other drowning people out of the sea. Not everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. It seemed the memory of its darkness and danger, though, no longer troubled most of them at all. It was perplexing to me. These people didn't even seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their own husbands or wives, brothers or sisters, or even their own children. To me, the thing that seemed the most amazing was that those on the platform to whom he called, the ones who had heard his voice and felt they ought to obey it, or at least they said they did. Those who confessed to love him were in full, much were in full sympathy with him in the task he had undertaken. They worshipped him or professed to do so. They were so taken up with their own trades and professions, their money saving, their pleasures, their families and circles, their religion and arguments about it, and their preparation for going to the mainland that they didn't listen to the cry of the one who called to them himself having gone down to the sea to save sinners. Anyway, if they heard it, they didn't heed it. They didn't care. And so the multitude went on right before them, struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. And then I understood it all. It was plain enough. The sea was the ocean of life. 
the sea of real, actual human existence. The lightning was the gleaming of piercing truth coming from Jehovah's throne. The thunder was the distant echoing of the wrath of God. Those multitudes of people shrieking and struggling in the stormy sea were the thousands and thousands of poor harlots and harlot makers, of drunkards and drunkard makers, of thieves, liars, blasphemers, and ungodly people of every kind, tongue, and nation. Oh, what a black sea it was. And oh, what multitudes of rich and poor, ignorant and educated were there. They were all so unalike in their outward circumstances and conditions, yet all alike in one thing. They were all sinners before God and held by and holding on to some iniquity, fascinated by some idol, the slaves of some devilish lust, and ruled by the foul fiend from the bottomless pit. The handful of fierce, determined ones who were risking their own lives in saving the perishing were true soldiers of the cross of Christ. That mighty being who was calling to them from the midst of the angry waters was the Son of God, the same yesterday, today, forever, who is still struggling and interceding to save the dying multitudes about us from this terrible doom of damnation and whose voice can be heard above the music, the machinery, and the noise of life, calling out to the rescued to come and help him save the world. My friends in Christ, you are rescued from those waters. You are on the rock. He is in the dark sea calling on you to come and help him. Will you go? Look for yourselves. The surging sea of life, crowded with perishing multitudes, rolls up to the very spot on which you stand. Look, don't be deceived by appearances. Men and things are not what they seem. All who are not on the rock are in the sea. All who are not on the rock are in the sea. Look at them from the standpoint of the great white throne. And what a sight you have. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, through his Spirit, in the midst of the dying multitude, struggling to save them. And he's calling on you to jump into the sea, to go right away to his side and help him in the holy strife. Will you jump? That is, will you go to his feet and place yourself absolutely at his disposal? Does the surging sea look dark and dangerous? Unquestionably, it is. There is no doubt that the leap for you as for everyone who takes it, means difficulty and scorn and suffering. For you, it may mean more than this. It may mean death. He who beckons you from the sea, however, knows what it will mean. And knowing that, he still calls to you and bids you come and help. Will you place yourself absolutely at his disposal? What will you do? Unquote. See, in conclusion, God has an extraordinary plan. It's bigger than just your salvation or mine. How do we get swept up into this story that's bigger than our own? People are lost. People need the Lord. They need rescue. And the only way to be rescued is to come to the cross. The Bible says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. The cross is foolishness. It's laughed at. It's folly. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And God's plan didn't start and stop with your salvation and forgiveness. God's plan is to bring you, us all to the foot of the cross and then move us into transformation. We become like Christ. 
To do that, we need to be in God's word and to be among God's people, and we need to grow and to serve him and to be empowered by God's spirit. As it says in the Bible, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the imagination of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We can't cover all that today, so let's focus on God's extraordinary plan. That number one, we have been saved, rescued and transformed to join God as a gathered and rescued people to glorify Jesus forever. We make disciples because Jesus told us to. He's our trainer. And more than that, we make disciples because God has a big plan and we are part of the team to put the plan into action. And we join Christ in doing his important work of rescue and transformation. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, we pause before you. Maybe even today as we're praying, you realize I'm one of those out there floundering around in the sea. I've never come to Jesus. I've never asked for his forgiveness and his salvation. I've never asked him to rescue me. But today I would ask him to say, I know if I stood before God today, I would not be made declared righteous. I would not be justified in how I've lived my life. I need a Savior, one who can forgive my sin. And you would just quietly in prayer ask Jesus to come into your heart and into your life and to forgive your sin. Maybe you say, I've done that, but I've kind of been living for myself, and I need to say, Jesus, you be the Lord of lords, the King of kings in my heart and in my life. I'm putting you as number one. And you just quietly make those, that kind of decision today. You know, when we're done here today, when we're done singing, you just come up and pray at the foot of the cross, and there will be people to pray with you. Lord Jesus, thank you that you call us to yourself. You're gracious, you're winsome, you're miraculous. And you love us best of all. And you invite us to come and to walk with you, to join your family, to be forgiven, to be rescued and transformed. That is the good news. It's the word of God. Amen.